On such occasions, many acts of gallantry are performed and pass unnoticed, and the number who receive decorations is small. Herbert J. Gunn, author of 10th Battalion, The Cameronians, Scottish Rifles. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast. So this episode is dedicated to my friend Ryan, who is the inspiration for this short little episode. Ryan listens to the podcast and he reached out to me with a question about the old BFWWP logo I used. That image, which you can see on my Twitter and Mastodon accounts, is a well-known and much-used photo of British troops running out of a sap trench during a raid on German trenches. Ryan asked about the background of the photo, as he has it in mind for a future project of his. Off the top of my head, I knew the photo was a real combat photo, taken of British troops as they jumped off into action. I remembered vaguely that the troops in the photo were Cameronians, Scottish Rifles, and that the photo was taken on the Arras front in 1917. You'll see the photo attributed to other places on the Western Front, notably the Somme, but it's from Arras, folks. I wanted Ryan to have the correct information, so I did a bit of digging on Google. What I found got me to thinking, why not try to put together a quick episode on the background of that photograph and offer it to my patrons on Patreon as a free and extra episode that I'll release to the general public later. Searching the web brought me to several excellent sources for the episode. I want to begin by thanking Chris Baker of the Long Long Trail website and the 1418.co.uk research site. Chris has already written about the history of that photograph, and he graciously allowed me to use his research for this episode. I'll link his article in the episode notes, and do check out his work. It's excellent. So let's get to the photograph, or rather, photographs, because it is actually the third in a group of five photos taken by Lieutenant John Warwick Brooke on the morning of that raid. Brooke was an official war photographer who was assigned to follow the BEF on the Western Front in France and Flanders, and between 1916 and 1918, he took thousands of photographs. 
the five photos he took that morning, tell a part of the story of that trend trade. And we'll start here. The photos can be found in the Imperial War Museum Digital Archives, with the object title, The German Withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line, March through April 1917. The photos are designated with a letter and four-digit number, in this case, Q5098 through Q5102. Let's take a look at each of the photos. Of all the photos, I actually think Q5098 is the most striking. It's striking because in 5098 we see, in a sap trench filled with huddling and helmeted Tommies, a man's face in the middle looking back at the photographer. In this world of industrial warfare, in dirt, in depersonalized uniforms and helmets, a human face confronts us. His expression is understandably grim. Who was he? And what thoughts crossed his mind in those last moments before zero hour came? Next to the man looking back at us, we see a huddling Tommy, leaning forward with his arms on his knees, his face removed by shadows. He exudes the feeling of one breathing consciously, clearing his mind for the grim work ahead. Photo Q5099 was likely taken as the men readied themselves to jump off. The soldiers are all facing forward in the direction of the attack. Lieutenant Brooke himself was now crouching a bit higher in the trench, as his lens captured the tops of the Tommy's tin hats. Up ahead in the trench, the first two men who will exit can be seen cautiously looking over the parapet, doubtless trying to gauge the danger of their next minutes. Photo Q5100 is the one folks will be familiar with, and it's the one I used for the podcast. Zero hour has come, and the men are hurriedly scrambling out of the sap. The first man is already out and in no man's land, rifle in his right hand. The second man is photographed as he climbs out. Look at the photo closely, and you can feel the urgency of the men to get out and move towards the German lines. Q5101 has Lieutenant Brooke close to the sap exit, standing now. In this photograph, he captures three men out of the trench, running with a purpose, the purpose of staying alive and getting to the objective. A fourth man is hoisting himself out, and close to Lieutenant Brooke, a bayonet sticks up from amongst the helmets. What lies ahead is a very deadly business. Photo Q5102 has Lieutenant Brooks still in the sap, and he photographs the men out in no man's land, scattered and moving out now. Trench raids were a part of a battalion's time at the front, along with guard, patrolling, observing, and maintaining the trenches and barbed wire fields. Raids were used to conduct sudden and quick strikes on the enemy, many times to capture prisoners for intelligence, but also to destroy equipment and kill enemy soldiers. Raids destroyed enemy positions, enemy equipment, and disappeared or killed enemy troops. 
both Allied forces and the Germans frequently used raids, and it kept everyone's nerves tight all the time. Trench raids, outside of major offensive actions and the constant pounding of artillery, were another source of heavy casualties. The best men were generally picked for small trench raids, and of course, that increased the possibility they'd be killed or injured. Trench raiding was yet another step in the development of modern warfare and its tactics during the First World War. For something as specialized and specific as a raid in one's sector, quote, preparation was extremely important, and the more thorough it was, the better were the chances of success, end quote. As Brigadier James Jack, interestingly, of the Cameronians himself, wrote, Every man must know his role intimately. The precise points to be attacked must be carefully settled and minutely examined through binoculars as well as by small patrols, unobtrusively, to avoid arousing the enemy's suspicions. One must also consider the best line of approach, the cutting of exit gaps in our wire after dark on the night of the venture, the time to be spent in the hostile trench, the signal to withdraw and the method, artillery and machine gun support, the commander's post, together with many other details. Soldiers taking part in raids needed to have as much information as possible in order to both successfully infiltrate and exfiltrate enemy lines. Following the leader would simply no longer do in these more complex military operations. The photographs we've discussed here were taken on the 24th of March, 1917, and the raid was conducted by the 10th Service Battalion, the Cameronians, Scottish Rifles. On March 23rd, the Scottish Rifles took over the section of the line at Blongy, then a suburb northeast of the town of Arras. A raid was ordered as part of the preparations for the British Third Army's coming offensive in the Arras sector, which was due to begin on April 9, 1917. The raid was to be carried out in the Blangy sector, where today runs the D60 Avenue de Macor and what has now become an industrial park. The objective of the raid was to, quote, to kill or capture enemy, to obtain identifications, to destroy trench mortars, machine guns, and dugouts, end quote. Two companies, B and D, would be taking part in the raid, attacking out of two saps and thus as two prongs. The northern attack would be conducted by D Company and consisted of a total of 78 men, four officers, and 74 enlisted. The southern attack would be conducted by B Company. The attacking companies were broken up into special teams, several blocking teams of one NCO and five men each, two clearing parties, each led by one to two officers and anywhere between a dozen and two dozen NCOs and men, and an escort party led by an NCO. No one was to wear any identifying marks. 
No shoulder patches, no ID tags, no personal items were to be carried. The purpose was to possibly gather information, not give any to the enemy. But you can see where this becomes a problem if a party member is killed and left out in no man's land or enemy territory. British artillery had been pounding the German lines at Blangy, softening them up for the coming offensive. Each company was to leave through its designated sap and form up in columns in no man's land. They were then to advance up to the German lines while BEF artillery worked over the enemy trenches. The blocking parties would create defense lines against any advance by enemy parties. The clearing parties would run along the tops of the trenches, and once at the enemy trenches, each prong would head toward the other until they met. Any dugouts encountered would be quickly flanked by armed sentries who would kill anyone coming out. Officers were to come to each dugout and yell down to the German occupants to surrender. Any negative answer or a lack of answer was to be dealt with by phosphorus bombs to be followed by Stokes bombs. The Germans were to be entombed in their dugouts. Any prisoners were to be handed over to the escort parties. It was to be a well-oiled machine. As the two attack prongs met, the officers were to turn back and clear those dugouts. As dugouts were cleared, those sentries now done were to be sent back to the trench entry points. There, NCOs would direct them back to British lines. The clearing parties were to withdraw at zero hour plus 25. Three minutes later, the blocking and covering parties were to withdraw. The blowing of French horns was the signal to pull out. For full details on the orders for the raid, do see Chris Baker's article. It's fascinating. Here's how the raid went in reality. Per the unit history titled The 10th Battalion, the Cameronians, Scottish Rifles, a record and a memorial, 1914 through 1918, by Herbert J. Gunn. Quote, the raid was fixed for the next morning, zero hour to be at 4 a.m. During the last four days, the artillery and trench mortars had been paying special attention to selected spots in the enemy wire with admirable results, while the Brigade Machine Gun Company and the King's Own Scottish Borderers had kept the gaps under constant fire at night to prevent the Hun carrying out repairs. The evening of the 23rd was mild with the threat of rain in the air, but at 2.30 a.m. the next morning, when the raiding companies were roused, a marked change had taken place. The atmosphere was very still and clear, and the temperature well below freezing point, a change of weather conditions which was to have a pronounced effect upon the raid. At 3.30 a.m., the raiders began to file out through gaps in our own wire cut during the night to ensure a speedy exit and return and lay down in no man's land until zero hour. The objective of the raiders was the enemy front and support trenches on a frontage of about 150 yards, 
with the object of obtaining identification of the troops holding this portion of the enemy lines and also of causing him loss to personnel and material. Strong artillery and trench mortar support was forthcoming. The artillery fired for five minutes on the trenches to be actually raided, whilst the raiders crossed no man's land and then lifted on to previously selected spots, fire continuing for 30 minutes all told. The figures in the diagram denote the parties detailed to search the main trenches and communication trenches. The letters A, B, etc. denote smaller parties to form blocks and prevent the enemy counterattacking from the flanks or reserve trenches. Punctually at 4 a.m., the barrage started and the waiting infantry rose to their feet and began to cross the 200 yards of no man's land. But disaster overtook B Company before they reached the Hun trenches. Shells from our own guns fell short and amongst our own columns, and Captain Steedman, commanding B Company, was dangerously wounded, a wound from which he died a few days later. Twenty-five yards short of the front line, Lieutenant Stewart was killed, and there were numerous casualties amongst the men. Lieutenant Pratt, with his platoon, was ahead of Lieutenant Stewart and engaged in getting through the wire. Owing to the darkness and the noise of the barrage, he did not know of the loss of the other leaders and pushed on too rapidly. These disasters caused confusion and gaps in B Company's column, but thanks to the coolness and bravery of Company Sergeant Major Timoni, who took command, order was restored and the various parties made their way to their appointed places. Meantime, Lieutenant Pratt pushed on up the communication trench into the support trench without meeting any enemy. There were several dugout entrances, all blocked up with wire and three blocks of wood and wire in the communication trench itself. At the point marked W, there was another block, and behind it, two Huns. Lieutenant Pratt shot down both with his revolver and was in the act of scaling the block when he was struck down by a bomb thrown from further down the trench. Almost directly afterwards, the signal for withdrawal was given. Little better fortune attended D Company in no man's land, and several unfortunate casualties from short shells occurred, amongst them Company Sergeant Major Sloan and Sergeant Barnes. A large gap was found in the Hun wire. As was not infrequent in such circumstances, the leader went too fast, and Lieutenant Mennery arrived at the support line with only four men. Here also, the communication trench was blocked in places and contained dugouts, the entrances of which were wired up, and there was no sign of a Hun. Better fortune awaited them in the support trench, however. Here were five dugout shafts, and at the top of two of them stood enemy sentries. An order in German to surrender by Lieutenant Mennery, a refusal followed by a revolver shot, represented the sequence of events in each case. In another shaft a light could be seen, though no voices were heard. Bombs were thrown in there, followed by a Stokes bomb. Close behind the dugout stood the remains of a machine gun which had evidently received a direct hit. At the points H and F, two Huns were accounted for and a bomb store destroyed. 
Meantime, Lieutenant Sanders with Number 4 Party had an exciting personal encounter in the frontline trench. He shot at a Hun and missed him. The man then closed with him and got hold of the revolver, but one of our men just behind Lieutenant Sanders saw his chance and drove his bayonet home into the Hun. Before the withdrawal, this party accounted for another enemy. The artillery maintained a most effective barrage, so that throughout the raid and during the withdrawal, there was no attempted counterattack by the enemy, not even rifle or machine gun fire. Unfortunately, the primary object of the raid failed. No identification was obtained. Yet it is not difficult to understand why this was so. Here were a number of officers and men, young, without previous experience of a raid, desperately keen, and keyed up to a high state of tension. All action was in darkness, and on the top of this, the parties were struck by our own shells early in the operation and lost their leaders. In the case of both the companies, the officers were occupied with personal hand-to-hand encounters, which must have still further increased their excitement. It is easy to sit behind and plan the action to be taken in cold blood. It is easy to practice and carry out the action, as planned, also in cold blood. But human nature must be reckoned with, and when hot fighting blood is up, it is easy to forget. So who shall blame these splendid young officers and men, most of them little more than boys? There is no doubt that a number of Huns were killed, and the effect upon the morale and fighting spirit of these two companies was tremendous. They were confident that no Huns could stop them, a feeling which spread to the remaining companies. Upon the value of such a spirit just before an offensive, there is no need to enlarge. Nevertheless, the price was a heavy one. We had lost three gallant officers, including a most able leader in Captain Steedman. Quiet and unobtrusive to the ordinary observer, there was never a more thorough officer in carrying out his work, a leader in whom a superior could place implicit confidence and one whose services could ill be spared at this period. Five men were killed and three missing, believed killed from such evidence as could be obtained, whilst the wounded numbered 22, of which a number were slight wounds only. Although most of the casualties were caused through shells from our own barrage dropping short, let it be clearly understood that no blame must be attached to the artillery. No mechanical device is infallible. Gun barrels become worn, and in war it is impossible to replace at a moment's notice. In this case, there can be no doubt that the sudden drop in temperature from mild, damp weather to several degrees of frost mainly accounted for these shorts, and not want of skill on the part of the gunners. For a finer lot of gunners than the 15th Divisional Artillery did not exist, and well the infantry of the division knew it. On such occasions, many acts of gallantry are performed and pass unnoticed, and the number who receive decorations is small. Captain Prentice won the military cross for his excellent leadership and for gallantry in bringing in wounded from no man's land in broad daylight on completion of the raid. 
Company Sergeant Major Timoni was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal, and never was it more fully deserved. This warrant officer displayed not only great personal gallantry, but fine powers of leadership at a time when his officers had become casualties and much confusion prevailed, intensified by darkness. On the day following the raid, a most remarkable act was performed by Private Flat of A Company, which was holding that portion of the forward area which lay amongst the ruined houses of Blangy. At a point in our trench, distant only some 30-odd yards from the Hun Trench, Flat stood peering at the opposite trench. He was not on duty and had recently come off a working party. Complete silence reigned and there was not a sign of movement anywhere. Flat appeared to think the moment favorable for his project. Putting a grenade in his pocket and holding another in his hand, he slipped over our parapet, crawled through an accumulation of bricks and stones, beams and bits of iron, and entered the enemy trench. The trench was empty, so he turned to his right and walked round a traverse. In the front of the trench, on the fire step, was a small recess, and in this, looking towards the British lines, was a Hun sentry. He had not heard Flat approach. The latter, quite undisturbed, motioned the Hun to come down. The sentry made no attempt at resistance and obeyed, leaving his rifle in the recess. On reaching the ground, he tried to run off, whereupon Flat hit him on the side of the head with the bomb, which he had in his right hand, and knocked him down. Flat then made him get over the parapet, and at 12.20 he arrived at A Company's headquarters and calmly announced that he had brought in a prisoner as if he was reporting the completion of a duty. The prisoner was 20 years of age, belonging to the 104th Reserve Infantry Regiment, attached to the 133rd. He spoke a little English and seemed quite content to be taken prisoner, although the officers of A Company said that his jaw dropped perceptibly on learning that he was in the hands of Scottish troops. The prisoner was sent off triumphantly to brigade headquarters, accompanied by his captor, Private Flat, who took a cordial farewell of his captive on parting from him. For his remarkable performance, Flat was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal and was also given 10 days special leave home. End quote. In the Imperial War Museum archives, it is noted that Lieutenant Brooke was there when a shell fell short and killed seven men in the raiding party he photographed, so it is clear that he was with B Company that day. The raid's objectives were to destroy enemy elements and gather information. The first objective was somewhat achieved, but the second objective was not. In an ironic twist devastatingly perfect for the Western Front in World War I, that second objective was achieved the day after the raid with the ingenuity of one intrepid private and at no cost. Every photograph tells a story, and here we are reminded that behind every photograph there is, indeed, 
a story. Folks, on Patreon and beyond, please let me know if you have enjoyed this episode. I have another idea or two that could turn into a short episode in the spirit of this one. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.